All right, everyone. Good morning. Go ahead and uh, take a seat. If not, one will be assigned to you. <laughs> Just playing. Good morning. What's up, Village? What's up? <laughs> What's up? All right, all right. So we are going. I'm Mike Parks. For those of you who don't know me, I'm going to be a... Uh, got the privilege today to walk us through Colossians chapter 2. And uh, as I thought about it, I began thinking about just a story that I read in the book. So I want to bring you into my illustration. You ready to be brought in? Oh, good, good, because you're getting brought in. All right, imagine this. Who's your best friend? Got him in your head? Okay, take your best friend and imagine that your best friend loves rose gardens. All right, so... This may be a stretch for some of you. I'm sure most of you, some may not like roses, but just imagine they love rose gardens and they love rose gardens so much. They had this massive rose garden in the back of their yard. And what they did was they went back there every day and they worked in the rose garden. They tilled the soil. They knew exactly what to feed the roses to help them grow. You know, they worked in it for endless hours. And one day you come to them and you say, Hey, do you, like the rose garden? And they're like, yeah, I like the rose garden. You're like, no, no, no. But do you enjoy the roses? They're like, well, what do you mean? Like, do you ever check them out or you just work in them? And they're like, well, I usually just work in the rose garden. And he said, and you challenge them. You're like, look, I want you to enjoy the rose garden. So your best friend goes out one day and they sit down, he or she, and she sits down for three hours. It's a long time, right? In front of the roses. And as they begin to look at the roses, begin to notice things. They begin to notice smells, the smell in the air of the roses coming across their face in the 78 degree day as it just rushes over them. And they look at the thorns and they see the veins. They look like veins in these roses. And all of a sudden they begin to see things and appreciate things in the roses that they never knew before when they were so busy on their knees digging up the soil. And all of a sudden they come back to you and they say, you know what? I appreciate the roses more. I like the roses more. I can enjoy the roses more. And guess what? That's what I'm going to invite you to do this morning. I'm going to invite you to sit down and look at Colossians 2 with me and enjoy the word of God together. Do you want to do that? All right, let's, let's do that. I want to do that. We want to enjoy the word of God and look at it together. And that's what I'm inviting you to do. Don't skip over it. Even go home and soak in this text. So if you, you don't have a Bible, the, the passage should be up on the screen. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage. I'll give you a moment to turn to it. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Therefore... As you, have you, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been ra- and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority 
In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power and working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them, on, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is a rich, rich, rich passage, Lord, that communicates great truths to us. And Lord, we know your spirit is active and present in this room. And Father, I just pray that each of us are receptive to that, that you speak to each of us, that you conform each of us to the image of your son, that you begin to penetrate our hardened hearts with your word. Lord, I pray, Father, that each one of us, myself and every person in here, can sit down and delight in your word, enjoy your word, to allow your word to penetrate us just as an opening illustration of gazing upon the roses. Father, we want to gaze upon your word and to see your beauty more and more through that. And Lord, I just ask that we tear down the veil that we may have erected within our own hearts towards your word so that it penetrates us, it changes us, and it conforms us into your, awesome, into your beautiful son. And Father, we thank you, Jesus' awesome, awesome name. Amen and amen. All right, so we're going to look at three things today. The first is that Jesus is everything you need. The second is that Jesus is the truth. And finally, we're going to look at that Jesus has done everything that you need. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. So let's roll. Let's look at the beginning text, verse 6. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. All right. Theologians love to murder trees over doctrine. And here's one that they have. Christ being Lord. We understand Christ's lordship in our lives more and more as we grow in Jesus. Do you not? Imagine when you first became a Christian, or maybe you're not a believer. When you become a Christian, your understanding of Christ's lordship is different than 10 years after you've been walking with Christ. He begins to, you begin to understand it more and more. It is a progressive thing. This idea of growing in God's grace is what we call progressive, and it's a fancy word called sanctification. Now, let me, let me explain it. The idea of sanctification can be boiled down to this. Do you have, did any of you grow up where your parents had fancy plates? They put them in a china cabinet on the side. Anyone? A lot of you. Okay, so what, what would happen if you rolled into the house one day, just grabbed one of the fancy plates and started eating off of it? You catch a beat down, right? Yeah, she wear you behind out, or maybe you went to timeout. Maybe she went that. Maybe they rolled that way. But you can, you might go to timeout or catch a beatdown. You're not supposed to touch the fancy plates. Why? The fancy plates are reserved for a special occasion, right? 
I'm glad you guys asked that question, by the way. So they're reserved for a special occasion. So you don't touch a fancy plates because the plates were set aside. Quote, unquote, those plates were being sanctified. That is what Jesus is doing in and through you if you are in Christ. He is setting you apart. And as you grow in God's grace, that is what happens at sanctification. That is what we see in this. It's a growing understanding of Christ's lordship. But it also says, as you have received him, Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Do you catch what's on the front end of the text? Read scripture this way. God always front loads us with who he is and what he has done before he turns around and says, now do this. Do you know why? It's a motivation thing. It is how God works through us. It is what's called an indicative. This is what God has done. It's like Christmas time. It's a gift. It's received. Have you ever received a gift from someone and you're overflowing with thankfulness after you've received the gift? And all of a sudden you're like, man, that is what Christ has done. He has given you a gift. And through this gift, he has given you a glimpse of his grace that you have received. And he says, now do this. Do this because you delight in me. Do this because you love me. Do this because of who I am and what you have received in me. That is the first part. You receive the gift and then you're called to walk in him. Okay. What is next Sunday? Come on. Okay. All right. So for those of you that know, help everyone else that won't get in trouble next Sunday. What is it? Okay, it's Mother's Day. That's right. So now your mom won't be all mad at you when you don't call her, right? All right, now you know. I saved a couple of you. So imagine Mother's Day. Now that you know, you say, I need to get mom flowers. Well, you go to your mom and you're like, hey, mom, check this out. You know, last Sunday I heard that it was Mother's Day coming up. So here are your flowers and you walk off. What's your mom going to say? She might give you a beat down like she, she did when you were little. Well, maybe not. So she's going to be mad. Why? Because you did it out of what? Out of your duty. Like this is just duty. But this is not the right way. Now imagine the other side. Imagine if you go to your mom and say, Mom, I love you. Check out these roses from my best friend's rose garden that I stole. I I mean, check out these roses and you give them to her and you say, Mom, I love you. Happy Mother's Day. What's the difference between that? One is a motivation. She feels your love, your affections and from the heart. This is what Christ is calling you to. Not simply a duty, but to delight in Jesus. That is what we can see. That is why we receive this. This is how we receive grace. And now we walk in it. Now, he hits us with three areas, right? Boom, boom, boom. Three things to be rooted, to be built up and to be established in Christ. This idea of rooted. How many of you I've seen seen tornadoes run through a town? You've seen a tornado run through a town probably, right? One or two of you. A couple of us. But as you see it and you go through, what trees are left standing? The biggest trees. Because they have the largest root system. They haven't been toppled over. They have a stronger foundation. That is what the text, this agricultural language, telling us to be rooted in Christ. So when we're rooted in Christ and we see the storm of anxiety come in your life, And it begins to overflow your emotions and you're beginning to spin plates and you cannot hold the plates because they keep going around your mind. Maybe four things, maybe only three things, and it just keeps going in your head and you begin to come anxious and overwhelmed. 
Because the fixation is on the subject and not on Jesus, who we are called to be rooted in. Or maybe then the storm of depression hits you. The storm of addiction hits you. All of these things coming into your world like a pressure cooker. But this is where we are called to be rooted. doesn't mean that these things don't come, but it means you have a foundation. You sing in the old song, lean on me, because you know who to lean on. You know who to call on, right? All right. He also tells us to be built up in Jesus, of learning. But learning is also for everybody within the room. Think about it this way. When you go to community group and someone says, what has Jesus taught you this week? What are you sharing all of a sudden? You're sharing how Christ has worked in your life. You're sharing a present tense reality on how he has strengthened you. That is what happens when you come together in a group. You learn from one another and you learn individually. But ultimately so it can go out corporately. Salvation in Christianity is much larger than one person. It is about God redeeming a people. Do you see? And guess what? The church needs you. Each one of you. And each one of you needs a church. There's a connection here that has to be made. That's why we don't grow when we separate. We begin to shrivel. Let's keep going. It says to be established. This is the idea of longevity. The longevity. Who likes a good race? No one. Okay, we have one athletic, two athletic. Oh, the kids. Okay. So we have one athletic person. All right. A good race. Everybody signs up for 5Ks, right? That's your first race. But you know what I love? I love an Ironman. Who loves an Ironman? Uh, you know, the Ironman, Ironman is like death when I watch it. I'm like, what are the wrong with these people? They're, they're addicts. They're crazy. I mean, they got more drive than anyone I've seen. You know how far they run? They isn't crazy, right? They go nuts. But you know what? The Christian life, you know what the Christian life is like? It's like an Ironman. It's progressive. It's long. It's God working in and through you. Like I said, this idea of sanctification, growing in Jesus, it's kind of like this. You go up the hill, then you go down the hill. You go up, you're down. But the whole time, you're basically fumbling up the stairs. There's a progress going on. So that's a bad illustration. You guys are probably thinking, man, I'm fumbling up the stairs. At least you're moving up the stairs, right? All right, you're moving. We're moving up. God is setting us apart. This is how it works. So let me tell you, over the long haul, what we need to see is this. Belief plus action equals actual belief. Are you ready? I'm going to give you the equation again. You know, one plus two equals three. So let me, let me tell you it again, just in case you didn't catch it. Belief plus actual action equals actual belief. Because... See, it's not just intellectual knowledge. It is God penetrating the heart and motivating you. Such as somebody that's not hospitable. God motivates them to put on hospitality. We put off selfishness. We put on hospitality. Guess what? That is a sign of God's grace growing in you. You recognize sin in your heart and you confess it to someone. That is a sign of God's grace growing in you. You have no desire for God's word and all of a sudden you want to read God's word. That is God growing in you. Do you see? And then you need to celebrate that with one another. That's sweet, right? That's good. That's good. Okay, so you guys are probably cool with the first couple, three words, right? All right, you're like, all right, I get it. I get it. I got to, I got to, I received a gift. 
Now I live it out. I'm called to be rooted, built up, and established. But guess what? You're about to do a mic drop because he says abounding in thanksgiving. And you're like, what? Abounding in thanksgiving. Who wants to be abounding in thanksgiving? Do you not know that my children, when they go to the store, they hide in the clothes racks? Do you not know I got bills? My bills are so high, I got penalties on top of my penalties. Do you not know that my boss hates me? Do you not know I got family issues? And when I say issues, I mean real issues. You know, or maybe you got that scene off of Friday. Maybe it's not the best thing to watch. But you're like, I got peanut butter. I got no jelly. I got cereal. I got no milk. I got ramen noodles and I can't even afford water. You know, maybe it's like that. You're like, what's going on? I'm supposed to be abounding in Thanksgiving. Now, that is what the text is saying here. And if we're, if we're real with one another, sometimes we see people who are thankful, overly thankful. You honestly probably think in the back of your mind, oh, you're a phony. Oh, did I, am I the only one that thinks so? Okay, so maybe that's what you think. In the back of your mind, what are you talking about? You're not real. This isn't real. Maybe you think it's fake. But you know what? In Jesus, you can be abounding in thanksgiving. I'm going to give you two points to tell you how, and then we're going to soak into your identity on whose you are and give you motivation to be thankful. Ready? Here's the first thing. Here's how we can abound in thanksgiving. You can change because Christ's grace has already changed you. You catch it. You can change because Christ's grace has already changed you. First thing. The second thing is Christ's sanctifying grace motivates and empowers us to change. That is how we can be abounding in thanksgiving because it is a work of God working in and through your heart, through his goodness. Okay. All right. Everyone ready for this? If anyone's making a grocery list right now in their mind, you need to check it off. Come back to me. You ready? Here we go. All right. Because I'm about to lay on you something that just needs to minister to your heart this morning. It is who you are in Jesus and whose you are. I'm going to go through multiple identity markers. And I want you just to listen to them, to soak in them, and allow this to go, this is why I can be thankful. You ready? This is you if you are in Jesus. You have received a new identity. You have received an eternal inheritance. You have received a new nature. God has adopted you. You have received a new family. You are loved by God. You belong to Christ. You have been declared dead to sin. You have been raised in newness of life in Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. You have been filled with the Spirit. You are no longer slaves of sin. You are being transformed by God's grace day in and day out. You have been chosen from the foundation of the world to be blameless in Christ's sight. You are united with Christ and Christ holds you eternally secure in his hands. Nothing will snatch you out. Nothing will take you from his hands. Whoa. That is a glimpse of who you are. Do you think about that when you wake up on Monday morning when you roll to work? Do you think about that? Or do you only think about it on Sunday when you hear it in the sermon? Cling to the text, guys. Peer at the roses. See, the, see Christ more and more. And then as you wake up 
on Monday before you go to work, look in Colossians again. Delight in him. And you begin to see a better glimpse of his beauty. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. All right. Verse 8. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth. It tells us, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the eternal, the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Okay, this idea of captivity is literally being kidnapped. When do you think of kidnapping? What do you think? You think of children being taken away and you think of the harshest penalty being laid upon that person who has done it, right? You think of that. That is what we think of in kidnapping. We don't necessarily think of the idea of being kidnapped by a thought or someone having a dialogue with us of a false idea. And the reason is we don't see false ideas for what they are. We don't see these things with spiritual eyes. When we do, we begin to understand what's going on in the background. So as we look to this, we are also told these ideas, man-made ideas, simply the ABCs of, of the world at the time. Now, this was called... The, the prevailing thought of the day in the first century was called Gnosticism. You guys probably didn't watch, wake up this morning and watch the news and they talked about Gnosticism, did you? You probably didn't want to hear it this morning. You're like, what is Gnosticism? What is this word? What does this even mean? I will tell you. So Gnostics are basically inside knowledge. And I'm going to connect the dots to everyday life. Here's a, here's a good one we see in our lives. Who watches TV late at night? Okay, you see the commercial with Madame Zelda? Hey, you know Madame Zelda. She's got the you know turban on with the yep with the jewel on the top, and she's got the crystal ball in front of her. Madame Zelda says, "I will tell you your future. Just send me fifty dollars, and I'll tell you the secrets of life." Guess what? Madame Zelda is a false philosophy. Most people aren't going to fall victim to Madame Zelda, are you? You probably have a little more discernment than that. But there's some areas that I need to. I want to roll over that. Cover, you know, just cover that we get hit with at every angle in our lives where sometimes it's not as easy to see the Madame Zeldas of deception. Are you ready? Let's look at a, let me give you a couple here. This idea of tolerance. Who knows what tolerance is? Everyone, right? Everyone knows what tolerance is. So let's go through tolerance. It looks like this. Sociologist Peter Berger once said that tolerance has become a plausibility structure within our world. In other words, it is so ingrained that everybody knows about it. But let me give you something. The idea of tolerance has changed. So imagine Matt and I talking and we have a disagreement. And Matt and I vehemently debate this disagreement. And he's like, you're wrong, Mike. And I'm like, nah, man, you're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. We go back and forth, right? We start kind of, well, we're not yelling like that. You know, it's just made up stuff, but we start talking and, uh, Matt and I go out afterwards and then he puts his arm on my shoulder and he's like, Oh my God, I love you. Come here. Let me buy you a cup of coffee. And we go out and we just live life. Matt and I are tolerating each other. That is the pinnacle of tolerance right there. That is true tolerance. That means I'm going to disagree with you and I'm going to love you. Right? That definition is the old definition. It's, It's simply accepting the existence of different views over points. The new definition has changed. This is textbook. It has changed within the dictionary. It simply says acceptance of different views. It sounds very minor, but it is simply totally changing the meaning. 
It is saying, I need to accept what you say, and if I don't accept it, I am being intolerant, I am being a bigot, and I am taking the moral high road and squashing you so you can't even talk. That is not loving your neighbor. That is squashing the conversation and killing intellectual engagement is what that, that is doing. Or as the famous poet Voltaire has once said, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Catch that? I disapprove with what you say, but I will defend your right to the death to say it. Because you're gay, saying a freedom of speech. And in our culture, that phrase does not go over well. I can tell you where this phrase does not go over well is within the area of sexuality. We live in a culture that this is so practical. We see it all the time. There are debates raging over it. We live in a culture of confused sexuality. The understanding of biblical, uh, biblical man and womanhood is obscured. What we need to see is not just recognize different sexual preferences, but what we are being fed is that you need to accept them. And if you don't, that is intolerant. Do you see now how tolerance is permeating into our culture and into the thinking, this pressure cooker idea? We need to get back to the word of God and say, okay, love your neighbor as yourself. Engage them. Bring them out to lunch. It doesn't mean fold to every idea under the sun. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Another area we see this is within fulfillment. So you see the t- you ever see the TV commercials? It's like it's like, hey guys, pay attention, buy buy Cadillac. You buy Cadillac, you get all the ladies. All right, maybe no one in here has got a Cadillac. I guess. All right, no one's got a Cadillac. All right. Well, maybe the beer commercials. You drink this beer, you become the man, right? Or you see the clothes, and it's you know, buy this, it will fulfill you. And what happens in our society? Another area of false ideas that come in. It come in through areas of through the media, through social, through conversations with friends, it becomes an idea of identity. The identity that I read about Jesus earlier is completely different than what is being told to you every day, day in and day out. Sometimes it's, as, it's shown as good things, but th- these good things, such as a healthy family, become ultimate things, and that's when it becomes all skewed, right? So we see this false ideas in that. And then ultimately, the, false, the idea of the false ideas coming into our world remind me of, remember Easter, when you were kids, if you celebrated Easter, or you've probably seen the, you've seen the chocolate bunnies in the, Easter, in, in the store, right? You go to Target, you see them on the shelf, the big ones, the big ones, big ones, right? The big chocolate bunnies, they're all wrapped in some shiny tinfoil. They look good on the outside, do they not? But you know what happens when you get that bunny home and you unravel that bunny and you're about to take a bite into it? Where do the crumbs go? Everything breaks apart because the big bunny has got nothing inside. Guess what? That is what is called hollow and deceptive. The big bunny of hollow deceptiveness. Okay, so that is the connection here. All right, that was... <laughs> you know, that, that didn't come out right, but that's okay. I'll keep going. So there's nothing inside. It makes sense, though. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to make you guys hungry. All right, so <laughs> let's keep on rolling. So the third point here that we can look at is that Jesus has done everything you need. There's no need. You can't add to it, but you can serve him out of delight. So let's look at this. Ready? Ready? 
For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is the first concern within the text. The very first thing we see is Jesus is the God man. He is eternal God. At the virgin birth, he clothed himself in humanity. He lived a perfect death, a perfect life. He died a sinner's death on the cross and says, come to me, all of you, for the forgiveness of sin. And then he resurrected. He resurrected bodily. So eternity, future, he is forever the God-man. But it keeps going. That's the first concern. It actually tackled and went into the face of the idea of Gnosticism in this text. He says, and verse 10 says, and you have been filled in him. Do you see this? You have been filled. This is a present tense verb here. It is complete. It is done. You are filled in Christ. There is a continual yielding of God's spirit that goes on in your Christian life. So you can walk out the Christian life. But at the moment of salvation, you are filled with his spirit. You have been filled. He is the head of all rule and authority. Nobody sits on his seat. Nobody else sits on the throne of Christ. The demons do not sit there. Satan does not sit there. You do not sit there. I do not sit there. Christ sits there. He is the ruler, the king, the sovereign one. And that is the foundation that we cling to. He is our king. Right? It keeps going. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, the internal work of circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. You can Google that if you don't know what circumcision is later. This is the first step here, the internal, right? But then it goes into baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the power working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, now I'm going to go over something about the mode of baptism. But I'm going to say a word. And I want you to put it in your minds. I want you to say humble orthodoxy. Okay, humble orthodoxy. That's what we want to grab onto. Now I want you to put your hand out. And I want you to close white knuckle fist. Just do like that. You don't have to wave it in the air and display it if you don't want to. You know, you can't have it like. But, all right, so. This is closed-handed doctrines, white-knuckled, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, the word of God. These are white-knuckled doctrines. We hold these hard. This is what we fight over, okay? This is what we would fight over. Now, if you loosen your hand up a little bit, that's secondary issues. Secondary issues, we can put things like the mode of baptism, tongues, speaking in tongues, gifts, Things like that. Now, if you open your hand wide open, these will be tertiary issues that we can just debate all day over, love each other, and keep on rolling on. Now, you know what that will help you not be? That will help you not be a jerk. (laughs) I'm I'm for real. I'm for real. I've met people, you know, let me not say that. But, okay, so this will help you not, like, go attack people. Don't make a secondary and a tertiary issue an essential issue. Keep the main thing the main thing, and then as you engage people, you love them, and you know when to have balance and when to back down. So that's why I'm going to give you a little bit of humble orthodoxy as I go into the area of baptism. I know there's probably many views within here that you come from many different backgrounds. So I'm going to give you a baptistic one here and a couple others. So first thing, there's three main, there's a couple main areas of baptism that have been historically known. The first, we've probably seen it, sprinkle, 
right? The second one is to pour over top of someone. And the third is, you know, dunking. That's what Baptists do. They dunk. And the fourth is super soakers. All right. Well, maybe the fourth isn't super soakers. That's not real. But there's main three, sprinkle, pour, immerse. Now, before I jump into this, I want you to repeat something because I think this is very important. I see people coming to the church, they get baptized and they're like, I'm good with God, the Lord, I'm rolling out. Guess what? If God did not transform your heart, you just got wet. That's all you did. You got wet and you dried off and you went home. You don't want to do that. Okay, so I want you to say, baptism doesn't save. Okay, I'll say it. Baptism doesn't save. Let me hear you say it one more time. Okay, we all got it. Okay, so it, baptism is an external sign of what Christ has already done internally in your heart. You are displaying to the church that you now belong to Jesus. That's what it is. So it also does not replace circumcision. It's, that's not what baptism does. The New Testament, the New Covenant is the circumcision of the heart, this internal work. That, that as we go under the water, the text tells us we are buried with him in baptism. In other words, we Baptists don't because we go under the water. We are representing the death of Christ. You're under the water because you cannot breathe. Under the water is a representation that you have died with Christ. And then when you come out of the water, it is representing that you have been raised to fullness and newness in Christ. Do you see? That is why we would say we want to dunk. That is what we do. So that that right there, that is the text. We've been raised with him through faith. So we want to hold that as a humble orthodoxy, right? But we keep going. Verse 13, we're going to, it begins to contrast the old pagan past with the present. It says, verse 13, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of, the, of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. Literally, he canceled the IOU. He cancels it. That stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you see, we were dead it says, dead in our transgressions and, and trespasses. And a lot of times we like to think before we came to Christ, until we begin to read our Bible well, we think we have an island, uh, island of righteousness within us. I've even heard sermons where pastors would begin to say things like this. They would begin to say, it is as if you were in a hospital bed and you were completely sick and Jesus walked in with the medicine and all you have to do is take a sip of the medicine. No. The illustration will be better like this. You are dead in the hospital bed and Jesus walks in and he revives you. That is a good news that will make you go, I love you more. Or another way I've heard it is that, oh, you're swimming in the ocean and all you had to do was reach out and take the life vest. No, you were at the bottom of the ocean, chained up, shackled, dead. And Jesus went down and ripped you out of the water. That is God's grace. That is God's grace working through you, this idea. And when you see that, then you can say, I love you more because you begin to see the depth in which he saved you. Do you see? That is the depth in which he saved you. We are all born in Adam. 
And that is why Adam sinned. We are born dead in sin. And that's why we need to be born again in Christ. The second Adam. Born again in Christ. He has canceled our debt. But a lot of times we want to run back to the law. We want to work it out ourselves. And a lot of times I think that we do not embrace this. We know it intellectually, but we're like, practically, we don't embrace this. You see the text up here. It says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You believe that if you're in Jesus. I'm sure you do. But we say things in opposition to this all the time. I'm going to lay something down that I'm sure many of you have said or even embraced an idea. And I want to do it delicately because I'm sure it has happened. We may say things like this. We see God's forgiven us and we see it as the basis to forgive others, right? That is what forgiveness, that is the only means that we see. We see we receive forgiveness and we extend forgiveness. But here's what we say. I just can't forgive myself. You catch that. This is an idea that is actually unbiblical. The idea of self-forgiveness actually comes from the area of psychology, not Christianity. And it is not biblical. So I want to present this because there is, this will create false guilt. Not guilt of rebelling against Christ, even though you're a believer. And Christ's goodness leads you back to repentance. This will create false guilt. And I want to give you three reasons why. Sometimes when we say phrases like, I just can't forgive myself, we are saying it is an unwillingness to receive God's forgiveness that we already have received. Positionally, we say, I embrace it. Practically, we are denying it. We are, when we say those things, we deny text saying, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So there's one. Let me hit you with another one. Ready for a second one? A second way we say, it says, it shows that we have an unwillingness to accept the depth of our depravity. An unwillingness to reconcile with what Scripture says about us. That even as Christians, we still have indwelling sin. And what we have done is we begin to set up a standard of our own. And we have an unrealistic self-knowledge. When we have an unrealistic self-knowledge and we think we are better than we are, we begin to shove Jesus aside and we make our own standard. When we begin to understand what the Scripture says and then we begin to see Christ's grace coming in with this comfort, then we cling to him. And finally, this understanding of making our... We can also utilize this term and make ourselves our own judge. Don't do it, guys. Don't make your own, yourself your own judge. You and I can't even uphold our own standard. That's why we need the cross. We need the gospel. And Robert Jones, uh, biblical counseling professor, Robert Jones, good friend of mine, Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones, you remember him, Dana. Uh, Dr. Jones once said, is this self-forgiveness theory merely a harmless, neutral notion? He says, nah, 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 nah. Any thinking that clouds God's forgiveness is never harmless. Hmm. Let that sink in. Any thinking that clouds God's forgiveness is never harmless. So, we'll wrap up by saying Jesus is everything you need, right? Everything you need. Jesus is the truth, and he has done everything you need. Let's call it, let's pray.
Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, Father, thank you that you didn't just save us and leave us hanging, Lord. I thank you that you, you just, you're a comforter. You come in our lives, Lord, and you draw us back. You draw us back. Lord, we, we come together week in and week out. And from the outside looking in, people may perceive this as silly. But, Lord, we know you and we love you. And, and, and Father, I thank you. Thank you for, the, for your son, for sending him. Thank you for your continued work in our lives. Thank you for the village church here. Father, I just, I just ask that, that you may penetrate us, that we may not wake up Monday morning not even thinking about you, but Monday morning we begin to sink and soak in it who we are, who we are and the fact that you hold us safe in your arms, that you are God, you are king, and that you rule sovereignly. And, uh, Lord, I just... Uh, Pray as well for the elders here, that they may lead well and pray for Pastor Dan as he's out. And as we continue in our worship, Lord, I just uh, ask that we would sing from a pure heart. And we just thank you in your son's matchless name. Amen.